World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. An Austrian mill first built to protect Nazi steelmaking from Allied bombardment was located in just about the worst possible place for producing steel. Yet, seven decades on, it's flourishing, even as the European steel industry takes a beating. We find out why. And a look at ads in America reveals the single most undesirable thing in a roommate. And it's not what you'd think. Unwanted house guests, loud music, unwanted house music. These all pale in comparison with the one thing everyone can disagree on, politics. But first... Britain's Conservative Party has chosen a new leader, and the country will soon have a new prime minister. And it's no surprise. And the total number of votes given to each candidate was as follows. Jeremy Hunt, 46,656. Boris Johnson, 92,153. And therefore, I give notice that Boris Johnson is elected as the leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. In a vote by almost 160,000 Conservative Party members, Boris Johnson won out over Jeremy Hunt by a decisive margin. We are going to energise the country. We're going to get Brexit done on October the 31st. We're going to take advantage of all the opportunities that it will bring in a new spirit of can-do. Tomorrow afternoon, Theresa May will tender her resignation to the Queen and Mr Johnson will take over. The two could hardly be more different. But the problems the new Prime Minister now faces are very much the same as his predecessors. Just like Mrs May, Mr Johnson will lead a fractured party, among them a group of parliamentarians openly hostile to him. Several ministers resigned ahead of the vote, and a few more are expected to. He's got a worryingly slim majority in Parliament. There are diplomatic issues to be addressed with China, Iran, and America. And then there's the biggest problem of all, Brexit. Mr. Johnson has repeatedly refused to rule out crashing out of Europe with no deal on October 31st. Well, I'm not going to take anything off the table any more than I'm going to take ah, no deal so no answer. off the table. Can the new prime minister succeed where Mrs. May failed? Mr. Johnson, who has long coveted the job, has enough self-confidence to believe he can. Others think his tenure will rank among the shortest in British history. Well, on a personal level, this is something that he's wanted reportedly all his life. Tom Wainwright is The Economist's long-suffering Britain editor. He's always told people, you know, ever since his days at Eton, that he wanted to be prime minister. He's had a go in the past. Last time there was a leadership election, he was poised to run and a lot of people thought he'd make it. Uh, but he pulled out at the last minute after one of his allies uh, rather stabbed him in the back. So 
this is something he's been working towards almost his whole life. Uh, it's a huge moment for him. Why is it that Mr. Johnson has been the favourite in this race since the very start? Well, in many ways, it's surprising that he came out as being such a favourite, because if you turn the clock back to a year ago, or even less, maybe nine months ago, a lot of people, including me, thought that he was really out of this. He was seen as being unpopular, having um, abandoned Theresa May and having generally stitched up a lot of his allies. It seemed most of the MPs in the party had had enough of him. And having the support of the MPs is crucial, because it's the MPs who draw up this short list of two. But this really changed in the past six months or so. There was a feeling among MPs that what they really needed in their next leader was someone who could win elections. That became by far the overriding priority for all of them. And I think a key moment was the European elections earlier this year in which the Conservatives did unbelievably badly. They got absolutely trounced by the Brexit party in particular. And I think that really focused the minds of Conservative MPs. And they thought, look, you know, our party, our Conservative party is in a real existential problem here. You know, we could be wiped out in the next election unless we get someone who can win the votes of those hard Brexit backing voters who have abandoned us for the Brexit party. And they saw in Boris Johnson somebody who could perhaps bring those voters round and who could win the next election. And so they got behind him very quickly. And that's how we've ended up at this point. And Mr. Johnson has breezily promised that he would go back to the EU to to renegotiate a deal for Brexit, something that obviously stymied Mrs. May multiple times. Do you think he stands a chance of, of doing that? Well, on planet Boris Johnson, it's all incredibly easy. You just go back to Brussels, you tear up the Irish backstop, which is the unpopular bit in Britain, which the EU says it wants. Uh, You don't even have to pay any money, he says. uh, And you leave uh, without any problem on October the 31st. And if you leave with no deal, well, that's no problem. But in the real world, it's not really like that. The EU have made absolutely clear that they're not prepared to do any serious renegotiation of the withdrawal agreements. You know, it may be possible to tweak bits and pieces in the political declaration just to make it sound a bit more appealing, but they're not going to go and just remove the backstop or say that Britain no longer need pay or anything like that. And as for no deal, I mean, there's a big debate about the effect that this would have on Britain, but it's nobody, no serious person, I think, believes Boris Johnson when he says that it would be fine and there would be, you know, minimal disruption. Every economist really is debating, or let's say nearly every economist, every sensible economist is debating the extent of the damage that no deal would cause, not whether it would cause damage. But how likely do you think it is that that Britain will leave without a deal, having heard this is on the table for all this time? Well, I think it's a real possibility. Boris Johnson has said that his first choice is to get a new deal through Parliament and to take out all the bad points of the old deal and and somehow vote it through. Um, But it's not clear at all that that's going to be possible because the EU isn't in the mood to give Britain a drastically better deal. Uh, The question is whether or not Boris Johnson can go back to Parliament and perform really the mother of all U-turns and claim that some kind of deal that's very similar to the current one actually is a brand new deal and, and use all his kind of charm to try and get it through Parliament or whether even for him that would be too big a U-turn and and in the space of two months that, you know, he may just find that he can't possibly turn back so sharply, um, in which case no deal may be what he decides he has to go for. Uh, and that's a real possibility. And we've seen in the past month or so, the markets have really been waking up to the fact that this is a, a real thing and not just a slogan. The pound has had a dreadful month. Um, and so I think British people really are buckling up for for what could now actually happen. I know that that Brexit has absolutely dominated the discussion, but there are quite a few things that the new prime minister has to to deal with beyond that. Um, Give me a little flavor of it. 
There certainly are plenty of things beyond Brexit. I mean, the, the immediate crisis, of course, is in the Middle East, where a British tanker has been impounded by Iran. Uh, Boris Johnson, as foreign secretary, didn't have a great record in his dealings with Iran. So it'll be interesting to see how he approaches that one. There's the difficult relationship with America to navigate. Uh, and at home, you've got uh, big economic problems. Uh, the public are absolutely sick of austerity, and they want the spending taps to be loosened. Uh, Boris Johnson has promised to do that. He's promised uh, more teachers, more police, um, uh, raising of uh, public sector salaries, lots of infrastructure. But it's not clear where the money's going to come from, not least because he's also promised a very big tax cut for the richest. So in economic terms, um, a crunch is coming as well. And I think the biggest problem of all is going to be in Westminster, where the Conservative majority now is down to a, a absolutely tiny, I think, three. It was five until recently, but just the other day, a Conservative MP was charged with uh, sexual assault of two women, and so he's been suspended by the party. There's a by-election next week in Brecon, which the Conservatives are expected to lose. That would take them down to a working majority of just one. And so it's very hard to see how the Prime Minister is going to be able to to really govern. I mean, forget Brexit, everything else is going to be difficult. And so in that sort of weakened position, what, what do you think the chances are that we'll have another general election sometime soon? I think an election this year is pretty likely, actually. I mean, if Johnson can't get Brexit through, he may need to call an election. If he does manage to get Brexit through, he may call one uh, to try and increase his majority. Um, and it, it's a time when calling the outcome is almost impossible. We've got nearly a four-way split in the polls. And so the winner of that contest is almost impossible to know. Tom, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In the foothills of the Austrian Alps above the city of Linz, cowbells and birdsong dominate the summer. But in the valley below are the smoke-belching chimneys and blackened silhouettes of blast furnaces from the steel manufacturer Vustalpine. The company is a success story despite the terrible state of the steel industry in Europe. Vustalpine has been in the black every year since 1993. Despite recent profit warnings and an investigation into the company by German competition authorities, it's doing much better than its biggest European rivals, such as ArcelorMittal and Tata Steel Europe. To make steel, you need access to relatively cheap iron ore, you need access to cheap coal, you need access to relatively cheap energy, and low labour costs can help you as well. Linz in Austria provides none of these qualities. Charles Reed writes about industry for The Economist. Austria's iron ore is not high quality, it has lots of impurities. The coal used in Austrian steel mills come from the other side of the continent, if not even further afield. And the European Union generally has relatively high energy costs due to relatively high carbon taxes. Why is this mill, this steel mill, in in Linz then? The Nazis have a lot to do with it. 
So the Hitler family moved to the city of Linz when Adolf Hitler was still a young boy. He later regarded it as his hometown, and he had a very strange ambition to want to industrialise his hometown. The opportunity for this came during the Second World War, when Allied bombers from Britain started to destroy the heart of Germany's steel industry in the Ruhr Valley in northwestern Germany. And the Nazis saw this as a chance to build replacement capacity in Linz, which, at least when they started building it, was far away from Allied air bases, so they wouldn't get bombed. The mill in Linz was built in a hurry. And making money from it was not a priority. It was simply somewhere to make steel, make a lot of it, and not be harassed by Allied bombers. It's still there. So the British government said after the war, this is absolutely ridiculous place to build a steel mill and try to shut it down. This was vetoed by the Americans, and the steel mill was nationalised by the Austrian government in 1946, and it remained in state control until the 1990s. So this mill is still there, still still producing steel? Yes, it's still there, it's still producing steel, and Vustalpina is doing comparatively well compared to the rest of the industry in Europe, which has fallen into an inferno of unprofitability. How do you mean? What's wrong with the rest of the industry? Well, the rest of the industry has been whacked by steel tariffs in America, and that has diverted a lot of steel which would have been imported into the United States to Europe. That has pushed down steel prices in Europe by about 20% over the past year. But steel producers have seen their profits squeezed because of their costs rising so much. For example, the price of iron ore has doubled over the past year, price of coking coal has increased 10%. And the price of permits for emitting carbon have tripled over the same period. Meanwhile, Vustalpine has managed to keep its head above water substantially over the last decade. It decided to invest into making specialist types of steel which earn more money, such as lightweight steels for the automotive and aerospace industry. Just by virtue of going specialist, is that a lesson for these other steel companies that have been floundering? Well, it provides some lessons for them in that specialist steel making and uh, producing high-tech steel um, means is a sounder business model because if you have developed a certain new technology, it's much more difficult for other people to emulate you because they have to put a huge amount of effort into developing the same technology that you do. Now, this is a problem for some of these other companies in that um, it would be much easier if they had decided to develop these technologies a decade or two rather than playing catch up now. So it sounds as if moving to high-tech, high-performance steel isn't an easy move for a lot of companies to make. Is, is there any, any other way to sort of become more, more resistant to downturns? Another option in the future might be producing more environmentally friendly steel. The steel industry is responsible for around 8% of humanity's carbon emissions from the burning of fossil fuels. And if Europe in particular is going to meet a widely talked about target of becoming carbon neutral, that means putting no more carbon into the atmosphere as you are sucking out. If you're going to hit that sort of goal, there's going to be a premium put on steel, which only requires very low amounts of carbon to be emitted into the atmosphere in its production. And therefore, it's hoped that investing in more environmentally friendly technologies to produce carbon will mean that companies will be able to sell their products at 
premium prices in the future. That's a plan that Vestalpino's competitors could look into. However, Vestalpino itself is already looking into it. Later this year, it will be opening its first plant in Linz to produce green hydrogen as Instead of putting coal into the process to produce steel, you can use hydrogen instead. And this is what they're ex- going to experiment with in the future. Charles, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you. There are plenty of deal breakers in a flatmate. Do they do the dishes, eat all your snacks? I had a flatmate once who thought he was a famous musician. He did his laundry in the bathtub because he feared being recognized at the laundrette. It's not just these classic concerns, though. There's a new study showing that people are increasingly worried about potential flatmates that are deplorables, or maybe snowflakes, depending on who's looking for one. No racists, no homophobes, no Trump supporters. I won't live with anyone bigoted, racist, sexist, or Trump-supporting. Trump supporters need not apply. Those were excerpts from Craigslist ads posted in Santa Ana, California, Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Missoula, Montana. And you're seeing a lot of this kind of ad coming up when people are looking for roommates? So these kinds of ads are not uncommon. There are a lot of folks who, who feel this way, And uh, they're actually the subject of a new paper by a political scientist out of Northwestern University who surveyed a group of a couple hundred students. He asked them basic questions about themselves, what they're interested in, their sort of personal habits, and also their political affiliation, and then presented them with hypothetical roommate profiles and asked them to rate these potential roommates on a scale from one to seven. And what did he find? So he found partisan affiliation was the most influential characteristic of, of all the sort of 30 or 40 that he tested. Turns out that being a member of the opposing party reduces the rating of that hypothetical roommate by about 0.6 points. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to put the number in context, minus 0.6 uh, on a scale of... So this is on a scale from 1 to 7. So 7 being the ideal roommate and one being, I'm not at all interested. There are several other characteristics that were rated quite negatively, including if the roommate was very messy, liked going to bed early. But there are also some positive characteristics. Watching sports is rated very highly, along with doing yoga, listening to hip-hop music. And in fact, one of the demographic characteristics that was quite positive among the religions was, was Jewish. So, you know, Jewish sports fans who listen to hip-hop are kind of the ideal roommate, according to this study. But I mean, why isn't this just a case of people trying to choose the people who are most like themselves for, for, for greater household harmony? So actually, the, the author tried to kind of test this to see when they matched with the person that's giving the rating, which matching characteristics tended to, to kind of boost the roommate ratings the most. And it turned out that political partisanship still came out on top. When you match with a potential roommate on party affiliation, it boosted this roommate rating the most, most of any other characteristic. So does it tell you that this is the, the sort of the strongest influencing factor in, in how people respond? Is that not just a reflection of political division in America these days? 
One of the interesting things that the author found is that the positive effect of sharing the same political party as a potential roommate is not nearly as big as the negative effect of that potential roommate being of the opposing party. The effect is actually seven times greater. That is actually a very good illustration of this concept in political science called negative partisanship, which is basically the idea that voters are increasingly defined not by their own love for their own party, but for their hatred of the opposing party. Doug, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.